Bigfoot Society would like to thank the following sponsors for helping make the podcast possible. Lauren Smith is the hostess for Nightcaller's Bigfoot Radio, which has been on air for over a decade and has completed over 300 shows. Lauren brings with her a unique viewpoint given that she is not only the daughter of one of the veteran female Bigfoot researchers in the South, but she has been conducting field research since she was a preteen some 20 years ago. Nightcallers is a Bigfoot world favorite and along with interviewing researchers and witnesses often features interviews with guests from the documentary film and entertainment industry. Lauren also does a vidcast segment called Nightcallers which features real encounters sent in by viewers. You can find all of this and more at nightcallersproductions.com. Welcome back to another episode of the Bigfoot Society podcast. This week we have a special classic episode that not many people have heard as you may hear my voice i'm a tad under the weather this last week and uh don't worry i'll get back to normal episodes uh soon but this week we have a special flashback episode not many people have heard dr charles paxton uh from scotland we talk about statistics and sea monsters and it's a wild trip uh a lot of interesting information in this uh, episode, a lot of information that we normally don't cover. There's Loch Ness Monsters, there's math. You're going to love it. So sit back, relax as uh, I play this classic episode from January of 2021. And hopefully be back next week with a brand new episode of the Bigfoot Society podcast. All right. Well, we have the privilege of having uh, Dr. Charles Paxton with us, and I'm going to read a little bit of info about Dr. Paxton, uh, and then he will tell me uh, the stuff that I missed. So Dr. Paxton is a research fellow from the University of St. Andrews, which is in uh, the uh, eastern side of Scotland, I believe. Uh, More specifically, he works uh, for a... uh, called CREAM, which is a center of res- for research into ecological and environmental modeling. Uh, he also states that he is a aquatic biologist, uh, occasional historian of science. Um, he's into things such as uh, the Loch Ness Monster, mermaids, mer-beings, sea serpents, the kraken, and you may have seen his work on Things such as uh, the missing evidence, the Loch Ness Monster for the Smithsonian Channel, the truth behind Loch Ness for National Geographic, the mythical beast for the Science Channel, the mysteries of the museum of Loch Ness, all sorts of stuff. And he's got uh, scientific papers that you could read for days, which um, look absolutely amazing. So thank you again for Dr. To, for coming on, Dr. Paxton. I'm going to say right off the bat, it is 7 a.m. in Iowa and the coffee has not kicked in yet. So it's going to be, it's going to be fun. But uh, is there anything that you would also like to add to uh, so that the listeners would know about you, Dr. Baxton? No, no, that seemed, that seemed to cover it all. Yeah. I, uh, I work um, as a researcher and also uh, teach uh, kind of critical thinking and stuff at the, um, at the university here, which is the oldest university in Scotland, third oldest in the United Kingdom after Oxford. That's Cambridge. So cool. um, yeah. Um, so predates predates the United States. <laughs> For real, yeah, that's the story, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it blew us out of the water with that one. Um, so, yeah, Scotland. Uh, eventually, I want to get over there because I am. Uh, that's my heritage. But um, so, how does a guy 
my question first is how, so you're into statistics, mathematics, um, all these, all this, uh, this math stuff. And how are you also, you're, you're somehow connecting this with cryptozoology. I'm getting this, there's this like sea monster and there's this math connection. Like what's the connection there? Well, um, perhaps I should tell you a little bit about my career and yeah, um, go ahead. So, yeah. Yeah. So like when, when, I, when I was uh, a boy, I would like many people, uh, probably many of your listeners, I was really, really interested in sea monsters. I thought they were really, really interesting and, and uh, all of this sort of thing. And then as I became older, I became, uh, well, I was always interested in fishes and um, marine life and things like this. So I went to college with the intention of becoming a, a fish farmer. Um, mm. And but then I actually got into the science. I became really excited by the science. And um, I then became interested in fish behavior. I did my PhD in fish behavior. But in order to do my do my science properly, I thought I needed to really improve my knowledge of statistics. So I kind of acquired statistical knowledge and I've ended up now I work in a, in a, in a maths and statistics department. But I've always kept my interest in the sea monster stuff I liked as a, as a little boy. And um, I was kind of interested. I, I've always felt that um, the full scientific story behind that it wasn't really being investigated so there were things that the skeptics were saying there were things that the kind of believers were saying and i thought actually there are a whole set of tools and i still believe this there are a whole set of tools we can use as ecologists as statisticians that can investigate these questions and produce original uh, original research that really asks questions are, are um, the things that um, some people say that they see actually true um, and what's the, what's the story behind that? And so my work kind of um, is slightly different. It's, it's, it, I, I think my position is a bit different. I'm, I'm not really in the believer camp. I would say I'm not really in the skeptical camp either because okay. I do think that some of the science actually doesn't reflect what some of the skeptics believe um, mm. because, interestingly, both the believers and the skeptics have fallen into the trap. They both assume that there's no science being done on the, their questions of interest. And so they don't bother <laughs> looking for it. And so I see skeptical articles where you think, well, you haven't cited the recommended, the, the, the available academic um, papers on this. So I see believer articles where they do exactly the same thing. And, and so there, there, are, there are a few people like me in the middle who are going, kind of, actually, the science says this, which is a bit different to what both sides are talking about. So, mm. yeah. And I think there's a lot more work that can be done on this as well. Wow, that is interesting. Very interesting. Um, let's, uh, I'm, I'm curious to, to know your thoughts on is cryptozoology a science? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it's not a simple, I don't think it's a simple question. Mm -hmm. I think, um, well, it kind of depends on what your definition of, of cryptos, cryptozoology actually is. And sure, well, yep. I prefer, of course, to use the definition of Bernard Hoovermans who, yep. We might not be the originator of the term cryptozoology. He was certainly the person who can't define it in an academic way. And what did he call it? He said it was the science of hidden animals. And by hidden, right. he kind of meant, as he later went on to say, controversial in space and time. That the range, the boundary of those animals was controversial in space and time. So maybe we're talking about things that are extinct or still alive today, or maybe we're talking about the existence of things whose existence is kind of debatable. Now, of course, that definition can be in the, you, you can investigate those, that in a scientific way, you can investigate that in a non-scientific historical way, but still in an academically rigorous way. But of course now, and again, this is a strange example where the kind of skeptics and the believers have kind of 
some believers, some believers to be fair, have kind of converged on the same thing. There is this kind of idea that cryptozoology is everything about it includes paranormality and and lots of lots of things like this, which of course right. was an anathema <laughs> to Hoovermans. But it's a weird collusion between you see this on Wikipedia between skeptics and believers who say it's all about paranormal animals. Well, I don't deal with paranormal animals because as a scientist, um, the paranormal is it's unparsimonious. It doesn't follow Occam's razor. You um, you're generating extra entities because as soon as you say there's a supernatural entity, then you've got to kind of explain physics, the physics of it, um, and, and all and all of this kind of thing. So that's yeah. so I'm a scientist. I think cryptozoology can be a science. Um, it, it, it can be. It can be people doing kind of humanities as well. So they're not scientists, but they're still academically rigorous. Oh, um, sure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's kind of popular cryptozoology, which kind of could be scientific, but not, necess- not necessarily is. So it's a complicated it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. That Yeah, but that is a very, uh, very good overview. Like that, that's that's pretty awesome. Um, because if you think about it, it's like, man, the ocean is so big and so much of it undiscovered. What's not to say that, you know, there's undiscovered creatures in the ocean out there. And I know, I mean, you're always seeing these photos of like out of the, uh, that you know these crazy fishes from fish from the death with like you know the the lanterns hanging down and I'm sure if there, you, there's these little fish there's got to be bigger bigger an, uh, animals fish out there that we just haven't seen yet I mean um, there were one or two whales that were discovered this past year correct I believe I heard that um, yeah um, again that's that's a complicated but really really interesting question so um <laughs> the answer to your question is that yes there are unknown animals out there and in fact i published a paper when i published it 1998 where i looked at um the rate at which we're discovering new unknown animals in the sea so at this point your listener has got to use their mind's eye but i'd like them to imagine a graph where on the x-axis you've got time over okay. hundreds of years going back to the middle of the 18th century so we've got time on the x-axis and we've got the cumulative number of animals described on the y-axis so um, modern biological naming starts in 1758 with a 10th edition of Linnaeus's Systema Naturae and I think he he had about 30 large marine animals greater than two meters in length right wow and then since that time we've discovered more and more and if you look at it the rate at which and if you now imagine the, the graph I pictured before if you imagine a curve that's going up quite steeply in the 18th century, going up okay. steeply in the 19th century, and then in the 20th century, it starts flattening off. Oh. Right? But it, it's flattening off. It hasn't flattened off. Hmm. Now, what we can do is we can take that curve and we can say, well, let's extrapolate that curve. Uh, and in other words, push it to the future and say, at what point will it level out? And the point at which it levels out, that tells us when we discover the total number, the ones that we'd expect, given the rate at which we're discovering things at the moment. Okay. And then if we take, we can estimate that number, and then we can compare that number with the number of animals we've got at the moment, and the difference tells us, gives us a way of estimating the animals awaiting discovery by science. That's cool. Um, yeah, so that, I published that, that as really, a paper okay. yeah, yeah. in 98, and um, 
I was, it was completely ignored by the cryptozoological community because here I was oh, saying, I look, bet. Yeah. Here we, yeah. Here, here we've got evidence, uh, and the skeptics ignored it as well. Here we've got evidence that there's, <laughs> there could be some unknown animals. Now, there's caveats. I made lots of simplifying assumptions there, which may not be met. And you were talking about deep sea animals. Mm-hmm. And of course, there's a bias. We, we've actually, we find all the animals that live on the surface and we're still finding things further down in the sea. But the fundamental point of that paper was there are unknown animals out there. And I said, well, we'll probably discover new whales every four years or so. And lo and behold, mm-hmm. we've discovered new whales every, every four years or so. Right. I say new, but some of them are kind of distinguished on molecular grounds from existing species. So they're not kind of new in the wholly new shape type way new, but they are new in the sense they are new species. Mm, very, very interesting. Have there been any uh, recent discoveries in, um, in uh, current years that have gotten you really excited of uh, creatures that have been discovered? Yeah, um, there was a massive ray discovered off Africa in the 1990s, uh, which no one really talks about. It was like two meters wide, over two meters oh, wow. wide. Um, so, and um, well, even um, High Manchura, which is the big freshwater ray of um, Southeast Asia, um, that, that's a fairly big, hefty beach. I, I say categorically, there are large aquatic animals out there that we haven't discovered yet. Uh, there is absolutely no doubt about that whatsoever. Mm. Um, on the, and I say that on empirical, empirical scientific grounds. If you just look at the rate that we're discovering things, we clearly have not yeah. discovered everything. There are big animals out there. Um, and that, that's a given. The question then isn't, are there big animals out there? That's, that's a given. It's, are they being seen by people? And that's where I have to say uh, I'm, yep, yep. I'm kind of skeptical because they're going to be deep down they're going to very rarely seen at the surface uh and all and, and that's the thing that's awesome uh, to circle back to something so just want to verify clarify for the audience two meters is going to be around seven to eight feet right yeah 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 okay. seven okay. uh, uh 1.8 yeah it just it's about six foot six foot and two thirds Okay, cool, cool. That's awesome. Um, but that's 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 just doing it in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're actually the uh, the first. Um, I need to think for a second. You are the first uh, person I have interviewed that uh, not from the U.S. So it's very cool. And uh, I'm actually interviewing. It's weird. It's kind of like UK Day. I'm interviewing uh, Richard Freeman later today oh, okay yeah, um, yeah i know richard so that should be interesting as well that's a little bit later on in the day but um when it comes to things like uh the loch ness monster um uh, and mermaids and beings, things of that the kraken like what so what is your favorite uh pieces of evidence that you could um that you like to go to for saying that things like uh, the Loch Ness monster could be a real creature. Is there anything that comes to mind or that you like to point to? Um, when you say is it, is it a real creature, it kind of depends what you, what you really mean is, is it an unknown real, real creature, right? Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. 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 Um, I done quite a lot of analysis. We've got a paper mm-hmm. um, just about to be resubmitted um, on, on, on this. The, I think the Loch Ness monster as a phenomena, and you have to, 
Uh, I'm very much against the idea of cryptids. I, I don't. Uh, I, that's not the scientific way of thinking about things. Okay. Um, I, I'm. Um, if you want to call me an expert, I'm not a Loch Ness monster expert. I'm a Loch Ness mm -hmm. monster report expert. Uh -huh. I know about the reports. That's the phenomena I can study as a scientist because that's the yes. data. The okay. data isn't Loch Ness monsters. So I'm currently doing a statistical analysis of reports from Loch Ness. Mm. Um, and the statistical analysis kind of points to the idea that what's been generating Loch Ness has multiple origins. Okay. Uh, because different things are being reported. The Loch Ness monster reports are not the same. They're not coming from, there's no evidence they're coming from one type of thing. They're not definitely not coming from one type of thing. They're being generated by lots of different things. Now, the question then is, what, do any one of those or some of those represent an unknown animal? And I've got to say, probably not. Mm. Um, we can, okay. every type of report that we find in Loch Ness, we can think of a fairly plausible, prosaic explanation for it. Really? Okay. Do you mind uh, yeah. going into that? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, many of these have been discussed already in the Loch Ness Monster literature. Um, things like wakes, um, sure. birds seen at a distance and they're misperceived, so their size is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, rotting vegetation that um, becomes buoyant and then wells right. up at the surface and then goes yep. down again. Yep. Um, uh, debris. Um, and the occasional big fish, um, you know, mm -hmm. it could be um, a sturgeon or um, a school, a, even a school of um, salmon or something like that. So there could be all sorts of phenomena that happen, happen on the log. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously there are always going to be reports which you can't, because I, I deal in the entirety of reports. I don't tend to deal, well, I have done on occasion with, with specific reports. I can't deal with what, do the, what does the whole phenomena tell us? Can we, can we say about, what can we say about it statistically? Mm -hmm. um, so obviously there are reports from Loch Ness which taken at face value are kind of uh, irreconcilable with um, prosaic explanations, but considered in entirety, then um, no, I don't think there's an unknown animal in Loch Ness. And there's good reason to, to think why that it wouldn't make sense on ecological grounds either. Loch okay. Ness is, um, it's a very big lock. Let's be, that's absolutely fair to say it's a really, really big lock. But it's what we call an oligotrophic lock, which means it's low in nutrients. Mm. And this means, well, it's good in some ways because what that means is um, oligotrophic environments are very favorable for salmonid fishes. So you do get migrating salmon coming through the lock. And of course, they're very popular amongst anglers. So that's, okay. that's a good thing. Um, but because it's an oligotrophic lock, this means that overall the abundance of fish is quite low. And so if there's, I once did a back of the envelope calculation on this, and other people have done ones as well, and it doesn't look as if there exists enough kind of fish, for example, assuming that Loch Ness Monster was a fish eater, to support a population of Loch Ness Monsters. Now, biologists typically right. say that a minimum viable population where you don't get bottlenecks that could cause extinction would be say 30 or so individuals. Um, and I reckoned when I did my, you'd be lucky if you had two, <laughs> enough, <laughs> two, two individuals in Loch Ness. Um, that isn't to say that you do, you do get predators coming to Loch Ness. You get occasional migrating uh, uh, gray seals um, coming into the lock and uh, possibly harbor seals as well. And they wow. can, and, they, and, and obviously they're, they're predators, but they're not, 30 foot long monsters they're right yeah small small little things 
Um, that is very interesting. So you said um, it would have to be 30 individuals. Would that also... Uh, I know I mentioned before that there was a question and we'll try to, we'll try to weave it in here. Um, is that, is that going to be similar to what the answer would be for, you know, how many of these creatures would it take to maintain like a healthy breeding population? Or is there any math that can be done um, behind that or. Yeah. I'm not that familiar with the, the theory behind it, but basically if you've got a population of 30, you expect it to, all populations will fluctuate. Okay. Just with standard, standard kind of statistical noise. And of course, if they hit zero or if they hit two and two of the same sex, um, mm -hmm. then right. you, you don't get, don't get reproduction, assuming there's no migration happening in and out of the lock. And we don't really think there is because, um, well, um, until the building of the Caledonian Canal, there wasn't a deep enough river to, for a big 30-foot monster to um, make. Oh, there is yeah. a river, but it's really shallow. <laughs> and so people have seen it coming through a major city in Venice uh, into the lock. So I don't okay. think you can say, say the Loch Ness Monster is, is migrating. Um, so we're talking about a stable population, um, which, uh, which fluctuates such that it never, ever goes extinct over hundreds of years. Well, yeah, theory suggests it should be 30 or so. That's, because that's that would fluctuate. Really sometimes there'd be 15, sometimes there'd be 45, sometimes there'd be go uh, down to eight. And as soon as that's, you know, as soon as you start having low, very low numbers, there's a chance that things won't reproduce and then mm -hmm. the population goes extinct. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. I like that. That's, that's really cool. I, I can see how math definitely plays an important role in, uh, into this uh, research that you did. It's pretty cool. I was looking through your, your website, uh, uh, c-monster.info is that that's the one right yep. um and there was a a line that you had in there that i kind of wanted to get your your thoughts on it says you're looking into how big certain marine megafauna can get um can you offer any insight onto that statement that because when i think of megafauna i'm thinking like you know, you've got your North American, like the elk that are like super huge back in the ice age with the big antlers and everything. So, but this applies to, uh, to sea creatures then. Yeah. So again, you can use statistics to answer these sorts okay. of questions. So, so one question I've been interested in, I published a paper on this quite controversial paper actually. Yeah. Mm. was all about, um, how big giant squid grew, oh. grow. And, um, so giant squid, uh, we don't know much about giant squid. We've got a few hundred specimens of giant squid. And in the past, in the 19th century, people seem to be suggesting that giant squid grew, grew, grew quite large. And I was kind of interested in this question. So I kind of did some various plots of the different proportions of body sizes in giant squid. Um, and then considered standard statistical measures of uncertainty associated with that. And I was kind of surprised to find out that um, the, uh, the giant squidologists, the, the um, malacologists who are interested in squid, they kept on saying things like, well, we know giant squid don't reach greater than, um, what are they saying, 20, 30 foot. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you consider the problem statistically, that didn't appear to be the case at all. It appeared to be that we really don't know because we haven't sampled many of the many specimens. And if you take into account that uncertainty, 
I was really quite surprised. Giant squid could grow really quite large indeed. Wow. And that was quite controversial um, amongst the giant squid workers because they've been quite conservative in their interpretation of, 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 because they said, well, the biggest we've seen is this. Um, but of course, the population of giant squid, um, we've measured about 450 specimens of giant squid. Okay. Um, the, the guesstimate minimum population size of giant squid worldwide is 100,000. And, and that's a minimum because we mm. know that, for example, a large numbers of them being eaten by sperm whales every year. And for them to be okay. sustainable on that basis, there's got to there's be a lot out there. So yeah. we just sampled 450 out of a population of 100,000. There's going to be some giants there. The idea that we've got the biggest right. giant squid in our sample of 450,000 out of a minimum of 100,000 is ludicrous. And that's all I was kind of saying, really, and just sort of backing that up with statistics. Um, and I was critiqued by some malacologists, well, one, who said, well, maybe the sizes that were given for the 19th century literature were exaggeration. So I redid the analysis, not including the 19th century ones, and you still get the same answer. Mm. So to the best of our knowledge, it's quite possible there are giant squid um, of really quite large sizes out there. Not 100 footers, that's that's crazy. But um, well, people have reported them, but I'm skeptical. Um, but maybe uh, 60 foot. But remember for a giant squid, that's their tentacles are really quite stretchy. So okay. you could have oh, quite yeah. a small body. Um, yep. And, and quite long, long tentacles. So I'm not necessarily... I, I've slightly misquoted people saying that um, the, there was some commentary on the paper said that giant squids grew to the size of school buses. And they meant North American school buses, not British school buses, which are a standard yellow, <laughs> standard yellow ones, I believe. Is there, like case, a, is there a huge difference? Well, yeah, because, um, okay. well, sometimes they could be double-decker buses. In, in, oh, in, yeah, yeah, yeah. On, okay. on all yeah. sorts of stuff. But you have these like standard yellow ones. Well, that's what I've seen from, Stranger Things and those sorts of things. Chil oh yeah, Chil and I'm going American off of Harry don't. Potter, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, kind of, yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and so people said, well, some of the popular articles said, oh, they grow as big as giant squid, but that, of course, uh, as American school buses. But that made people think that the body was as big as American school buses. Oh, right. The, the body, the bodies don't grow as big as American yeah. school buses. That 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 would be a ginormous giant squid. Yeah, it would. Um, but. You know, maybe the three meters in terms of body length, maybe an extra half meter for the head. Mm. That would be, that. So the chunky bit of body would be pretty big, but probably not going beyond that very much. Very cool. That is cool. So again, you see, it's um, it's one of the, these these cryptozoological questions actually can be answered using statistics to produce answers yeah, totally. which kind of um don't really fit in with the paradigms of, of kind of either side um but the science is there you just have to kind of look for it and think about it uh, and, and all of this kind of stuff i mean it, it makes me want to later today um do some research on if this same type of thinking has been applied to like uh you know uh Bigfoot in north america like if there can be a sustaining population if it has this supposedly like this amount in of uh, space in the pacific northwest like that that might be some interesting to look into i think um yeah um i, I don't know the bigfoot literature at all uh, i mean i know that um there's been a little kind of statistical work done um there's a guy called um Farrenbach, i think it is 
we okay. did some work on footprint, the distribution of footprint sizes, um, which is kind of fun. I didn't necessarily, I, I read his paper, I didn't necessarily agree with the conclusions, but I like the basic idea of kind of investigating Bigfoot footprint sizes. Given, mm. again, my argument would be this is this is the data. Right. Um, you know, yep. the data are reports, or in the case of Bigfoot, they're reports and footprints and maybe calls. Um, and again, you can do statistical kind of things with them. And um, Jeff Meldrum, I mean, he's kind of oh, yeah. taking a, 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 similar, a similar approach. I've, I've never actually spoken to him in person. Um, but I mean, he's kind of taking a, 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 yeah, a, a similar approach. Um, so again, you can investigate um, Bigfoot as a reported phenomena and draw conclusions about it as a reported phenomena. And that would be the scientific approach and because mm -hmm. we don't know Bigfoot scientific community doesn't accept that bigfoot exists what the scientific community cannot doubt at all is that bigfoot exists as a reported phenomena and yeah, so it's perfectly true. legitimate perfectly true. legitimate for us well in theory for a scientist to come along and say i'm going to do analysis of bigfoot reports mm. um now i funny enough i've approached once or twice i have approached um uh various organizations in um the United States about doing this, and they've kind of um, they just ignore my emails. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, which I, which I found kind of weird because you think people would be enthusiastic about scientists actually kind of taking a look at their data, but um, they did. Um, oh, that's too bad. Yeah, mm. because I think there probably there are some interesting things that could be said about mm -hmm. um, things from the reports. I mean, one phenomenon, whether or not you accept Bigfoot exists, and we know this from work I've done in the the sea monster stuff is that there are sociological trends in what people report mm. um, and you see this in sea monsters i'm pretty damn sure you'd see it in um, bigfoot as well where there'll be changes in what people report through time ah yeah um, totally even if the phenomenon was real even if the underlying phenomenon is real there would be changes in what is reported through time as as um cultural um, input changes the emphasis on what people think is important to report from a report, if you see what I mean. So it oh, could yeah, be that, cool. um, you know, 40 years ago, people um, just said it was a big ape, right? Mm -hmm. But they didn't bother kind of explaining it. But maybe now we'd be more sensitive to issues like, um, how does it smell or something like this? There could be just like subtle things like this would just be more likely to be reported now than mm. we'd be likely to report it um, at other times. Totally. I, well, I'll give you an example of that. I mean, until 10, 15 years ago, everybody reported ape-like Sasquatch, right? It wasn't. And now there's people talking about um, wolf-headed Sasquatch and stuff, right? Right. You've got like, well, the dog man. Yeah. Yeah. It, now, I, I get what you mean. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yep. It does. Okay, what's, what's, what's going yeah. on on there? Well, why has that suddenly arisen? Well, I, I'm kind of yeah. saying, well, that's, that's, that's a sociological thing. That's not a, you know, you're not telling me that, that, I mean, that there were wolf-headed Sasquatch 50 years ago. That's no, so, that's so, even if it was a supernatural phenomena, there should be, there should be yeah, wolf-headed yeah, yeah. Sasquatches 50 years ago, oh, um, but there weren't. So that, that's, that's sociological. Right. Um, That'd be cool too. So, and again, you know, well, this wouldn't be the job for a scientist, perhaps this would be a job for a social scientist to come along and go, right. okay, what are, what are the trends and trends in these reports? Um, mm. That's cool. Yeah. And so the, there's cool. loads of work that could be done that could be academically rigorous work on this phenomena you just have to move away from the um idea that um well you don't 
you don't start with the premise. It's a the cryptid is the thing you're studying. You're studying the evidence. That's the thing you're mm-hmm. studying. It's the evidence. It's the it's the reports. It's the footprints. It's the calls that that you study. That's the that's the tangible thing you can study. And then um, there is actually a name for this. They call it reification. It's where you've kind of moved the hypothesized thing, the Bigfoot, to being the object of study. Now that it, the Bigfoot is the hypothesized thing from the point of view of scientists, maybe not, of course, from people who've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing that definitely does exist is the thing that we can study, and that's reports. I, I'm a one-track pony on on on, the, on saying this, but it's, no, it's, that's cool. That's it's cool. it's not something that's out there which people are thinking about. But it's so important to kind of to bring this out um, because that's the way. If you want cryptozoology to be accepted by academics, you've got to study the stuff which is studyable, and that's mm-hmm. the evidence. It sounds exactly like um, uh, Cliff Berkman from Washington. Uh, from the North American Bigfoot Center, and he's like, "We gotta, we gotta focus on the evidence." You know, it's like, stop telling me the stories where it's like, "Oh, I saw Bigfoot, and he had, you know, he was on his way to his pic, is a picnic." Like, tell me the actual like stuff that you can observe. You know, like the footprint size, the, you know, did you see hair, stuff like that. And that's all me paraphrasing, but that's pretty much what he's saying is very similar to you. I did come across a report by a group called the North American Ape uh, I bet it was. I bet it was North American Wood Ape. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, yeah. Na- yeah. Yeah. I, I, like, um, yeah. I like their approach. I like their kind of exactly empirical. Um, we're going to try and study this. Maybe it'll be fruitless. Maybe it won't be fruitless. But I, I like the, you can't mm-hmm. deny that their approach is scientific. They are. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're making an effort. Um, I, I kind of like I like their approach. I, I thought I thought that was kind of cool. Um, Going back to uh, to sea monsters uh, in more uh, things that you've been studying on, what would be. Um, well, I guess there's two different ways. So what are your, your goals for 2021? Do you have any goals regarding like um, doing more uh, mathematical uh, formulas to try to figure out new, new things regarding your, your study? Or would you like to see certain things come out regarding this field of sea creatures? Or uh, Well, I've got a number of papers coming out. Uh, well, they're under review, so I can't. I can't put anything else. But obviously, we have to go through go through peer review and everything. Um, got a big statistical analysis of Loch Ness monster reports, what they mean. Um, oh, wow. And once that one's out, there's a whole series of papers that come after that one, which explore, um, which you do exactly what I was talking about before. Explore the Loch Ness monster phenomena as a as a sociological phenomena and looking at how oh, cool. changes and what's what's been reported through time have fluctuated according to basically what how people were collecting the data so this is the other issue so you have different organizations collecting data at Loch Ness and what's reported at Loch Ness varies depending on who's collecting the data Mm. not because they necessarily had an agenda well many people had an agenda in the sense they wanted to prove the existence of Loch Ness monster but the way in which they collected the data was different Okay. And so, for example, in one particular point in time where one organization is working on Loch Ness, you see um, a large number of reports being generated of a certain type. And we know why, why they're being generated. It's because they were collecting data in a particular way. Oh. Um, and so there's a whole 
So there's some work on that coming out. Some other stuff. There's I, I don't want to go into too many details to to give out uh, things, but there's oh, a certain, totally, yeah. there's a certain way in which the Loch Ness monster is sometimes reported, which is biologically impossible. Mm. And when that's reported, so the question is, well, what does it mean when people report this thing? Which actually they could not they could not possibly have reported. It'd be literally impossible for them to report the thing that they're actually reporting on biological grounds and also on physical grounds. Um, wow. How often is this this particular thing reported? And um, so there's a paper on, on that coming up. And, and that will become clear when the paper comes out. You'll understand okay, what, what, okay. I'm, what I'm talking about there. But I don't, I don't want to talk about... Yeah, yeah we don't want to give anything away because um, those are hard to put together and get a peer reviewed and all that i would imagine we don't want to yeah, yeah yeah um and there is prejudice i, I i've been um the, the, I, I know um people often say believers often say uh, of um scientists that they're kind of prejudiced against their work and i hmm. and actually i i think that is partially true because i know that um because i have i have non non-convent i have normal non-cryptozoological related stuff that i do and uh, it doesn't go through it doesn't um get rejected half as much as my cryptozoological work gets rejected oh that's <laughs> funny yeah and i think I sometimes <laughs> I, it's reached a stage now where um i have to kind of and i don't like writing this because i feel it kind of prejudges the assumptions where i've actually had to say we are not seeking to prove the existence of the Loch Ness Monster because that's not our, our agenda mm. with, with the papers that we're writing. But people, it's quite clear from the reviewers that they assume that we, the very fact we're writing a paper on this mm. assumes that we believe it, which, which doesn't, from my perspective, doesn't link at all. There's no reason why you can't, because like I said, I'm studying the, the evidence associated with the Loch Ness Monster. I'm not, so we're not claiming the Loch Ness Monster exists. If I, if I thought I had evidence for that, I would submit a paper that said that, but the, at the moment i haven't got evidence of that so mm. and i do th so i think that the prejudice is there um i don't like to say that because i'd like to feel that my scientific colleagues are completely objective and everything like this i mean and i do think that um even if someone found evidence of bigfoot like proper biological evidence of bigfoot yeah they might find that difficult they might find that difficult to publish actually um it mm. certainly it would uh, it would be subject to extreme scrutiny, rightly oh, yeah. and properly so. Um, they'd have to, I mean, the actual reality is if you want to produce peer reviewed science publications in cryptozoology, they've got to be better than normal scientific papers because they will receive that extra bit of criticism and scrutiny. Interesting. Um, uh, partially, I understand that because as a skeptical cliche goes, um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So, you're mm -hmm. going to have to yep. put your data up for scrutiny, but um, it's kind of hard. I mean, um, when you get your paper knocked back, um, when you think this is a good, this is a good, yeah, that would be frustrating. Paper. Yeah, because um, I know my stuff. I'm not, you know, everything is kind of every point is like justified in terms of the statistics or previous work and all this kind of stuff. Um, so you do kind of, kind of get a bit frustrated, but it's in the nature of science. You've got to take it on the chin and uh, well, yeah, carry on right. pulling those um, things out so regarding um your way of applying mathematics to you know uh, the study study of sea creatures etc are there i know that um 
a lot of your work is definitely in scientific papers as it should be. Are there any books that are similar to that that you would recommend for the listeners to read if they want to dive deeper into this? Or uh, um, is it more yeah, well, like you need to get into scientific papers? No, no, no. I mean, this book I kind of like, which if you okay. kind of, um, this is actually the guy I've co-authored with. So this is the, well, you, your listeners won't be able to see this. I've just plucked this from my bookcase, which is next always called Hunting Monsters by Darren Nash. Oh, yeah. Um, I want to talk um, to him someday. He's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I've collaborated yep. with him. Um, okay. And I think in many ways, our opinions on these matters are pretty similar. We disagree mm-hmm. about some things, but um, uh, he's certainly, um, I think we probably agree about most things. But he, like me, he accepts the idea that you don't have to believe in cryptozoological animals to find it's a fertile um, uh, area of study. But, I mean, like all of us, he comes as a secret. I think it's a secret bit of him that wants to... Um, wish that these animals did actually exist um you know but in the marine context undoubtedly there are odd things out in the out in the sea terrestrial cryptozoology which i know nothing about that's my it's an uninformed opinion i'm i'm a bit more skeptical about um right but um i'm wouldn't claim to be an expert on bigfoot and stuff i've never done done the legwork on on that i think it was an interesting uh, side conversation definitely but uh, Dr. Paxton, thanks so much for coming on um, halfway Sorry, can, through can, your day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can go I just, ahead. just, just, just yeah, have yeah, one yeah, thing, please. Um, I just, I just want to make something clear that, yes, from my perspective, and that is about witnesses. Mm. And I don't want people to come away from this discussion thinking that I doubt the lived experiences of witnesses. Okay. My view on, I study reports, and my view on reports is that. The witnesses are truthful unless I have evidence to, to the contrary. Mm. And that's really important. What I would claim is that perhaps they've misinterpreted what they've seen, but my default, and I think it should be the default for anybody who does this kind of stuff, is that people are telling the truth. Um, okay. So I just wanted to people out there, so I, 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 you can be skeptical without denying the experiences that people have actually had. I, I, do want, I just wanted to, kind of, to, to stress that. That's a good uh, There are hoaxes and liars out there, but I don't think they're the majority. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to kind of put awesome. that one out. Awesome. Um, what would you say the uh, the best way for if people are like, man, I really like uh, what this guy is doing, what would be the best way they can uh, follow uh, your your work and things of that oh, um Well, there's, yes, c-monster.info. That's mm-hmm. C-S-E-A. Um, which is my website where I publish details of my papers. Um, on Twitter, I'm uh, what's my Twitter handle? Charles Paxton Four, I think. I think um, you're right. Yeah. I occasionally um, post about new pub- uh, publications there and um, other occasional crazy thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> occasionally, um, feeble attempts at humour, <laughs> <laughs> things like that. Um, yeah, so that's probably how people can um, find out about stuff. Uh, and every so often I appear on television, but that's uh, that varies quite a lot. Um, gotcha. Wow, thanks for coming on and uh, and chatting uh, for my audience for a bit. I think, I mean, this is probably going to be the most amazing uh, bits of content, uh, scientific-wise, that we've had so far. And I really appreciate you you sharing everything that's on on your mind regarding it. It's very cool. Uh, Thank you for coming on.
Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Bigfoot Society podcast. Please take a few minutes to review the show on iTunes. Five stars as it does help us get into the eyes and ears of more listeners on iTunes. Uh, That will help us just get bigger and bigger and get even better quality guests for future shows. Uh, Also, if you have any Bigfoot encounters or cryptid encounters, please send your stories and uh, audio and photos, whatever you've got, over to BigfootSociety at gmail.com. If you'd like to become more involved with Bigfoot Society and get some extra content, we do have a Patreon uh, where you can get all sorts of cool things. For example, for $7 a month, you get extra Bigfoot Society content, uh, usually interviews, but other things as well. You get a sweet membership card and a vinyl sticker that I send to you in the mail. You get access to the Bigfoot Society after show, which is an extra interview after the main interview with the weekly guest. And usually they are up for uh, Patreon members to be in that extra show segment with them and me. And you get to ask your uh, question live to them and get an answer from the guest, which as you've seen what guest we've had in the past, this could be a really big deal. There's also a private discord where you can get involved with uh, talking to me one-on-one and the community there. And that's always a great time. You can find the Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash the Bigfoot society. Uh, we're very thankful for all our supporters that we have in so many different ways and appreciate uh, all our listeners coming back week after week to listen to more cryptozoology-based interviews. Uh, Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Bigfoot Society. Any content provided by our guests are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone. Thank you.